Welcome to The Lancet Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, North American Executive Editor. Since an executive order issued by President Donald Trump in January 2017 and the announcement of a zero-tolerance policy by Attorney General Jeff Sessions in early May, hundreds of children, as many as half of whom are under the age of 12, have been detained at the southern border while attempting to cross into the U.S. without authorization. The policy has accelerated the number of children who have been separated from their parents and transferred to juvenile facilities or foster care. On Tuesday, June 5th, the United Nations Human Rights Office condemned the practice and called on the U.S. to immediately halt the separation of children from their parents, stating that the use of immigration detention and family separation as a deterrent runs counter to human rights standards and principles. The child's best interests should always come first. As these reports have surfaced, they've been met with incredulity and anger and deep expressions of concern about not only the legality of the administration's policy, but whether it actually meets the UN criteria for torture. In this podcast, I spoke with two researchers who suggest that is indeed so. I'm Jana Jovanen. I'm a developmental psychologist, professor in the psychology department at UCLA. I'm Jen Silvers. I'm an assistant professor of psychology at UCLA, where I focus on developmental neuroscience. I think to kick off, what we should do is to give a bit of context about the situation and and talk about the policy that has been laid out recently that removes children from unauthorized parents when they're crossing the border without documentation. And so for whichever one of you wants to kind of feel that, if you could kind of walk us through what it is that's actually actually happening right now. The U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced in his speech at the U.S.-Mexican border that any unauthorized migrant who brings a child to the U.S. will be separated from the parent. And obviously, this is a tactic that is meant to deter parents from bringing their children to the U.S. To ask a follow-up question around that. So the issue is that under this policy, as opposed to anyone who would be trying to enter the country, that it does not have authorization versus people who would be presenting at the border and looking for asylum, for example. Under this policy, it doesn't seem to distinguish between these scenarios. Is that the case? Well, it's actually interesting. So since this announcement, there have been many media reports of that this practice may have been in place already, in part. For example, there are reported cases of especially when fathers brought their children with them. The fathers are automatically separated into male detention centers, high security detention centers. Some of these practices may have already been practiced or in place, and this, obviously, this announcement makes it even more overt and as a matter of policy. So whether this pertains only to illegal border crossings or not is little unclear at this point. And I think one thing that has been difficult to ferret out is that, you know, as you mentioned, obviously, this is a practice in what what they're considering deterrence. But we know that the vast majority of people who are coming through the border legally are usually doing so under duress, coming from situations that are high violence, high conflict. So it it seems that it would be rather unlikely to be a deterrent in the way that they that they propose, as opposed to being something that's pure 
necessarily punitive. And so in the the recent op-ed that you've both written in the Washington Post, you connect this policy with where it meets the UN definition of torture. And I thought that was a really interesting way to look at this. And I was wondering if you could make the case for us of why it's important to label this policy with that definition. Well, we approached this issue of this very inhumane practice from a scientific perspective. So as developmental psychologists, we really think about this in light of the large body of research on the effects, adverse effects of parental separation. And although much of it has to do with separation that takes place early in life, uh, which can then have really lifelong consequences on children, at the same time, what we're talking about here is children at their very most vulnerable moment. That is, if you think about it, these are children who are, first of all, escaping violence in their home countries. They have then endured this very long, unsafe and unsanitary trip to the U.S. border. And at this very moment, with lots of fear, uncertainty about the future, and there's this threat of them being separated from their most basic protection, which is the protection that their parents can provide. So so we think that this really is more than inhumane, but in light of the scientific evidence, really meets the definition of torture. And it is very interesting to think about the formal definition of torture based on the UN definition. So it says, any act by which severe pain or suffering, whether physical or mental, is intentionally inflicted on a person for such purposes as obtaining from him or a third person information or a confession punishing him for an act he or a third party, so in this case it could be the parent, has committed or is suspected of having committed. So the act being crossing the border illegally. You know, we call it torture based on our scientific knowledge but it also seems to be fitting in part this formal UN definition of torture. And just one comment I wanted to make about that is the fact that what's so disturbing about this policy is not merely that this is the U.S. sanctioning torture of some form, but it's sanctioning it not against the individual who we're accusing of having committed some crime, if you believe crossing the border is a crime, but instead we're torturing the victims here, which are the children. So this policy is being used as a deterrent against parents, but the victims of torture here are their children who really had nothing to do with even crossing the border in the first place. That's an important distinction. These are just really harrowing stories of separation, but also that the presumption of, you know, the action of the parents who potentially are illegally crossing the border, that's not exactly established because there are, you know, multiple situations at which someone might cross the border, but really the fact that this policy is affecting the innocent children of parents, regardless of whether or not the actions are illegal, make it really part of this kind of nefarious gray area of policy that I think, which is what people are reacting to so strongly. Now, because you are both professors that study development, I thought that that was an absolutely important element to bring to this discussion, and especially being a medical journal and health journal, these are the the nuts and bolts of what we are interested in, is how this might, in addition to potentially, you know, the policy itself, but how this might be affecting the children from a health perspective. And so I was hoping that you could talk to us a bit about that dimension and where you think the consequences of this are, are 
are the most salient? Sure. The, the science is unequivocal here, and this is something that medical professionals, educators, parents, scientists, all are really in consensus about. Separating children from their parents is a terrible idea, and it has lifelong consequences on an individual's cognitive, emotional, physical, and mental health development. So in some epidemiological estimates have suggested that about 30% of the world's cases of mental health problems are attributable to childhood adversity of some kind. That is encompassing a wide variety of experiences from exposure to violence to abuse to deprivation to parental separation. But in the aggregate, those kinds of childhood adversities account for about 30% of the world's instances of mental health problems. So this is a very significant public health issue in general. What's concerning about these children is that we know that the more exposure you have to childhood adversities, the more at risk you are for developing long-term problems. So we're taking children who are already at risk due to most likely the experiences they had in their home countries that are leading their parents to take them to the U.S. They're already at risk because of the trauma they may have experienced there or en route to the United States. And then separating them from their parents which is arguably one of the most significant kinds of adversity a child could ever experience, is going to be piled on top of that. So it's really a perfect storm of of trauma and stress for a child to experience by coupling those experiences with each other. When you separate a child from their parent for a prolonged period of time, the effects are devastating. So the most clear pieces of data that support this idea come from research on children who have been placed in institutional orphanage care where they're deprived of any kind of stable caregiving for extended periods of time. And there's two points I want to make from that literature. So the first is just that any amount of time in institutional care can have really terrible effects on a child's long-term development. So I and other researchers have studied the long-term effects of children who were in institutional care, sometimes even just for one year as an infant. They don't even remember their time in institutional care and have since been in wonderful, loving, adopted homes ever since. But they still show marked differences in terms of brain structure and function and also in terms of anxiety and other psychiatric symptoms. The other piece of data that I want to point out is that the longer a child is in this kind of institutional care, the more devastating the outcomes are. So children that have been placed in institutional care for longer periods of time, they tend to have even more stark effects on their long-term development, ranging from stunted growth, lower IQ scores, um, significant mental health problems, and cognitive delays. This is, I think, the the clearest evidence comes from um, research that's been done on children who were initially in institutional care in Bucharest where half of the children were randomly assigned to stay in institutional care as infants and half were placed into foster care. So we know that any differences we observe between these groups are due to their experiences because they were randomly assigned to be in one or the other. And even 12 years after this initial assignment to be in institutional care or be in foster care, we see profound differences in terms of children's ability to, to cope with life and their overall adjustment. So these are long-term effects that we see from children being deprived of stable caregiving, and these are significant effects that we really can't ignore. So I think that this is just so devastating to imagine that as a policy we would try to subject children to these kinds of experiences when we have really clear alternatives. That's a perfect segue into the next question that I wanted to ask. What are the alternatives? I mean, obviously, for many of us, the the entire policy is not something that we would ever advocate or feel the necessity for. But given that we have an administration where this is clearly a priority and that this 
practice may have preceded some of the specific decisions made by the administration and that they've also come up with justifications for doing so that once the children are in institutional care that it's less likely that they'll end up in human trafficking situations for example is one explanation I've heard. There must be a better way and because of the links too I think of how similar this is to some of the situations of refugees resettling in Europe. I was wondering if you could talk to us about what those alternatives might be. Yeah, this is an interesting question because, again, when we wrote this op-ed piece, one, one piece of information we were looking for is what has happened in Europe. We're not talking about a caravan of about 200 people coming from Central America. We're talking about thousands and, in some cases, tens of thousands of migrants coming to any, any one European country. And Obviously, there, in some cases, the masses were so great that the the need exceeded the capacity, and there were suboptimal conditions for individuals and families. But I have done all the reading I could ever find about the cases in Europe, trying to find if this sort of policy or practice ever surfaced. And what is so striking is the mere opposite, that how European nations are talking about the reunification process that is trying to make sure that if any child got lost during this long journey, that they try to unite the child with the family. The, the family comes to where the child is. There are efforts to make sure that any unaccompanied kids who cross the borders are being served. And again, Europe and Europe, some European nations dealt with, again, great masses, and they were not able to necessarily provide of what they want to provide. But what I think is really striking is the difference in rhetoric. If you think about what Jeff Sessions or the Trump administration is doing. For example, one of the issues last year was that they stopped funding the one family center that had specifically catered for mothers with young children and pregnant women. So that very center that was designed to cater for this vulnerable population was defunded. While the European nations, they are really trying their best to adhere to the United Nations Convention on Rights of Children, where the focus is on best interests of children, meaning that any child who crosses the border has right to medical care, psychological counseling, legal aid, and education. So the whole emphasis here is how can we make sure that the child's rights are being protected, how we can keep the families together as opposed to what is happening right now in America. As researchers, we commonly think about how our science can inform public policy, and this is a case where it's really the reverse is happening, where public policy is forcing us to consider what we need to be doing as scientists in order to better promote children's development. So this is a really fascinating time to be a researcher.